Welcome to the Social Housing Podcast from Voicecape, the only podcast dedicated to helping social landlords build sustainable tenancies. During this series of podcasts, we'll be speaking to leaders from the social housing sector and beyond, hopefully challenging the status quo a little bit, and also stimulating discussion around how technology can be better utilised to help build sustainable tenancies. I'm your host, John Doyle, the Chief Exec and Founder of VoiceGate. about 19 or 20 just about finished a levels and i literally became homeless after i came back from holiday i had my passport and my camera in my back pocket and my suitcase and that was it that's all i had so i experienced um, what it was like to sleep rough and sofa surf and run out of places to sleep for about three months and then i'm watching the news and then there's wind rush i was like oh my god this is my mum. this is what my mum's going through and I got so angry to find out that this wasn't just my mother this and my dad. This was like a whole generation of people who came in the 50s and 60s who were invited to this country. My mum was invited to come to do her nurse training. She came here to be a nurse. My dad worked on the buses, worked on the underground. And worked... Today on the Social Housing Podcast, my guest is Lara Oyedeli. She's going to talk to us about her fascinating journey from her own personal homelessness through her involvement working for a variety of social landlords and a position now as a trustee for a homelessness charity. Along the way, we'll also discover her role as a social entrepreneur and a campaign for greater diversity. I just wanted to start off really by asking you to tell us a little bit about when you became homeless and then how you first experienced the social housing system. I think that's a good place to start. That's a very excellent and emotional place to start. I think I was about 19 or 20, just about finished A-levels, wasn't sure what I was gonna do with my life. And uh, I was living in a bedsit. And I decided to go away on holiday. I went to America to visit my friends. And when I came back, lo and behold, my lovely bedsit landlord had evicted me without letting me know. So I turned up and all my stuff was in the front garden. And I literally became homeless after I came back from holiday. I had my passport and my camera in my back pocket and my suitcase. And that was it. That's all I had. So I experienced um, what it was like to sleep rough and sofa surf and run out of places to sleep for about three months. And that was sometime in the 80s or so, I don't know, 89 or 90s, around that time. And yes, um, it was an interesting experience. It wasn't one that I wish on anybody, it's, uh, but it did, how can I put it? It did give me an emotional understanding and appreciation of what it's like to have your own home, to have a place that you can go to at the end of the day that's secure, that's warm, that's got all the lovely things that we now pack in our homes. You, all the things that we value, the things I'm talking about, not people, but the things, people too, like, your, like my CD collection, my shoes, my handbags, my iPad, your shirts, whatever it is, it's all really pointless if you've got nowhere to sleep that night, you know? And that really has, um, how shall I put it, has been the foundation of my choice of a career in social housing. So anyway, while I was homeless, I ironically, I was working. I had three part-time jobs. 
So I was a cleaner in the morning. I had a job, again, irony of irony, in a housing office in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> I was working as an assistant in a local housing office. I used to like put stamps on envelopes and, and organize repairs. And I did that for a few hours, of, I think that was 12 to four. And then in the evening, I was a sorter in the post office. So between all those three jobs, I managed to always find somewhere to sleep. I, I slept in the sorting office once, and I, don't, I hope my manager never, never knew. So I managed to keep up the pretense of living a normal life. But between those jobs, every day I would go to the what was then called the HPU. I have no idea what it's called now. That's Homeless Persons Unit. And I would go in every day and kick up a fuss and beg and, and cry and, and do whatever needed and I think about five or six after five or six months luckily it was over the summer I was finally given the keys to a two-bedroom council flat and I tell you I think that was one of the happiest days of my life I had my own two-bedroom flat my own front door was on the top floor of this disgusting block of flats but I didn't <laughs> care because it was mine and uh, and it's because of that I was I was able to get my act together and finally go to university and I know for certain that had I not got that flat, I don't think that my life would have turned out the way it did. I mean, I went on to go to uni, then again, another uni, then another uni, uh, you know, and do all sorts of interesting, wonderful things. And I sometimes wonder, because I'm a bit of an obsessive personality, that that is the reason now I, why I'm now a landlord. I own a property and I want to own more and I love property. I want to buy more. But then part of it is the fact that I want to be an enabler of other people have secure and safe homes so it's fairly evident there lara that obviously a home is right at the center of your sort of being isn't it yeah oh absolutely i think it's the center of everybody's being you know it's um without a home a lot of the other things that we do are not possible i mean if this pandemic has done anything it's made those of us that have a comfortable home appreciate it more if you're living in a studio like one of my cousins, he lives in a studio with two children and his wife. I have no idea how he works from home. Yeah, that's got to be difficult. That's mega overcrowding. So it's not just having a home, it's having the right kind of home that, and that is appropriate for your situation at that time in life. You know, and this cousin of mine lives in South London and I've said to him, you're never going to get anything off the cows, so we're going to have to try and see how we get you into the private sector. Go ahead, John, you had a question there. I want to say that's interesting because I'm intrigued with your your first interface Mm -hmm. with with the social housing system. I accept that, you you know, you preempted it by saying you worked in the office of a a landlord when you were homeless. Mm -hmm. But then in terms of your journey, your personal journey, Mm -hmm. what was your initial experience of the social housing sector? Well, I wasn't really sure that I didn't know that it was a thing, if you understand. I I was like, I think I was 19. I just because even when I was working in the housing office it was just a job I didn't really see the significance it was like that's just a job I go in and do the post and do what I'm told and then I go to the post office and do the post and you know I I didn't have the how can I pull it the the ability to analyze a situation the way I I do now so I knew that if you're homeless you go to the council that's what I knew so I went to the council I found the office and I used to go every day and uh, think my my, ex, my experience with the individuals was was very nice they're all very nice and helpful people the system was a bit i would say chaotic and at the time slightly inconsistent 
Um, I imagine the rules of what's called priority homelessness and all those kind of things have probably changed over the years. And I know that I probably imagine if I was homeless now, I would never have got that two bedroom council flat. So I know that much. But at the time, <laughs> I was very, I was very grateful. The people were helpful. And I think a lot of it was about my persistence. I had to keep going because every time I turned up, there was another family there, a family with three kids and, and there's me. So they always, they were priority as yeah. well. So no, I, I, I mean, I don't really remember the details of that. I just remember the emotion of the time and the stress of always wondering, where am I going to sleep tonight? And is it going to be a safe place? Is it going to be indoors or outdoors? Is it going to be my friend's front room yeah. or my friend's friend's garage you know I, I did the rounds so so it's definitely helped to shape your outlook just moving forward then I, I'm quite interested if you could give me a potted history because you've done a lot of things with social <laughs> landlords you've done a lot of things in the space yes um, employed in, by different people so just really a, a bit of a potted history sort of the good the bad and the ugly if you like of what you've seen All right. Okay, well, I, when, I, I, when I was at uni, because I went to uni thinking I was going to be this big time journalist, going to change the world, write articles about poverty and homelessness and whatnot. So I went to Loughborough and did a degree in media studies, which is a fantastic thing to do, irrespective of what you want to do for the rest of your life, because those media skills are the best. And while I was at uni, I volunteered in a homelessness charity called Charnwood Homelessness Shelter. I went to Loughborough. So that gave me the opportunity to work with people that were like, that were how I'd been just a few years prior. But I was doing, helping with their fundraising and their advertising, so the media side of it, but I, yeah. I, I occasionally did the app, frontline outreach. So that was my first attempt to repay the social housing sector. And I sort of got to understand that, you know, there's homelessness charities are different from the council. And I sort of knew vaguely there was this, there were these things called housing associations, you know, but I was doing media studies, so I didn't come across it too much. But one of the, the organizations I did come across as part of my degree was the Child Poverty Action Group, because I think they were best based in my department at Loughborough, or if they weren't, I think one of the professors was. So yeah. I sort of got a, to become aware of this sort of social sector, you know, and how it impacted on housing. When I finished my degree, um, I went off and worked in the States for a bit as a journalist, didn't like it, came back and decided, well, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And I decided I wanted to do something that made a difference. Um, the reason I didn't enjoy journalism at the time, because I, I was doing a lot of corporate work and I hated it. I was working with, I felt I was working with people who had more money, and no sense, were ungrateful and didn't appreciate what they had. And it just used to irritate me that I had to like suck up to these people and I hated it. So I wanted to do something useful where, you know, when I went home that evening, I knew I'd made a difference and I decided, yes, I was homeless. I worked with homeless people. That's what I want to do. I want to help make the world a better place. So I looked around and found that the, the Economic and Social Research Council were funding people to do masters in social housing. So that's how I ended up at the LSE. And I did okay. the masters in housing at the LSE. Went from there to work for Notting Hill Housing Trust as a tenant participation officer. Not just any old tenant participation officer, mind you. I was doing tenant participation in supported housing. So that's a niche within a niche. <laughs> right. and, I, and I loved that job. And Notting Hill were great to me. They've not paid me for this, but Notting Hill were great to me. 
I got so much training, so many opportunities to do interesting and innovative things. And then being the typical Lara that I am, I eventually got bored. And I thought, I need more. So I went on to Eve's. I don't know if you've ever heard of Eve's Housing for Women. They don't exist anymore. Okay, no. Eve's Housing for Women was an organization that helped single women, single homeless women off the streets. Now right. we're talking the late 90s, early 2000s here. And you have to think back that in those days, you did not often see single, you did not often see homeless women. Homelessness no. uh, in those days was a very male thing, a masculine thing. So when I was homeless, I'll go back a bit. So when I was homeless, I was unusual because all the other homeless people around me were mostly men. And I used to just make sure that I was on my own and I never went into the hostel. I refused to go into a hostel. I thought there's no way <laughs> I'm going into a hostel with all these men who've had too much to drink yeah. and have probably taken some drugs and I have to go to work in the morning. So yeah, so for anyone who's interested, this is why women don't go into hostels, unless it's an all-female hostel. So anyway, uh, where, where was I? So yeah, I worked with Eve's Housing for Women. I was in charge of the housing services there. and We were working with lots of women who'd been abused, trafficked, domestic violence, even though that wasn't really accepted as an issue in those days but i was aware of that so i went on to eves worked with eves for about three or four years and then from eves see do i remember what my cv says what does my cv say from eves i went on to work with i think it was pinnacle right that was next i did spend six months with the london borough of hammersmith and fulham just before i started my masters Right. That was actually a requirement of the masters that you did a stint in a housing office. So my first proper job where I actually knew what I was doing was as a housing officer in the London Borough of Hammersmith and Fulham on Wandsworth Bridge Road. So I have the local authority, the charity, and then Pinnacle was great. I mean, it's a very white male organisation. Sorry, Pinnacle, if you're listening. Uh, I love you all. Um, <laughs> But I got to travel the world, uh, not the world, I got to travel the country. I worked in Edinburgh, I worked in Burnley, did some voids management in, in Burnley, did customer services review for Edinburgh Council, helped, helped set up a PFI in Newham, managed some street Victorian properties in Westminster. So I did the whole gamut. And then I went on to become a CEO of a small BME housing association, which I did for eight years. And, then I, and since then, I've been working freelance. Phew. Phew. So yeah, that, that, is, uh, that is some track record. Some track record. I just wanted to ask you, mm. the role of social housing, mm. what, what do you think of it? And over that period of time, has it changed much? Oh, yes, certainly. So as, as a recipient and then as, you know, starting as a young housing officer, working my way up yes i could see the changes i remember speaking once at an nhf conference and i think it was 2011 and i remember saying that from a journalist point of view that was a those were the days when all housing people used to complain that we never got any press i don't know if you remember that time no one <laughs> takes any notice it's always nhs it's always education no one mentions housing and I remember saying at the conference, well, I've observed the trend and I've seen how waiting lists have got longer and longer and people that used to be able to call a housing association and apply directly can no longer do that. You have to be nominated by the local authority. The, the cost of housing is getting higher. My nieces can't afford their rent, but it wasn't, it, it wasn't critical, but I could see it coming. 
And I remember saying at this conference, I said, trust me, our time will come where you won't be able to hear a new story without it being about housing in one form or the other. But by that time, it will be too late because that's, that's what news is. If it's okay, then it's not news. It's only news if it's all gone pear-shaped. And that has come to pass. And you know, every, every two minutes, there's some article about housing, private renting, shared ownership, leasehold scandal, a whole gamut. Uh, but I'd like to say, I saw that coming because I said that at that conference. I don't know if anyone listening was there at the time. I did say so and it did pass. So yes, the role of social landlords. Well, how, sh how far shall I go back? Now, if I did social housing history as part of my masters. So we taught, the way you're taught is, although you had the Victorian landlords, the Victorian philanthropists, the Peabody's, the Sutton's, the, the Cadbury's of this world, they, they let me think who else they are. They set up these Victorian philanthropic organizations to look after either to house either house their workers or house artisans or whatever. So that's the first phase. Yes, sorry. Sorry, sorry just to interrupt there, Lara, but it's quite interesting because I've just this morning mm. the, the, the the new white paper came out today. So obviously oh, yes. date yeah. stamps this podcast. But mm. Basically, I had a quick look through it, and what you just started off on there, I think uh, Jenrix read the same things because he was banging on about the historic significance of social housing, Joseph Rowntree, yep. Bourneville, Octavia <laughs> yes. Hill, yep. you name it, Peabody. Octavia Hill, <laughs> Peabody, Cad all those people, yeah. So that's what you get. Yeah. So you start from there, but they had a specific target, which was, you know, this was Victorian benevolence, the working class, not necessarily the poor, but the working poor, if you, and there was a distinct dif difference in those days. And then you move on to, I would say the sixties, when you have the movement that came from um, like the Rackman's movement, that's where Shelter and Notting Hill came from. Um, a lot of um, organizations were started in the sixties in response to immigration and social movements. So even Metropolitan Thames Valley was, did start as Metropolitan Colored People's Housing Association. I don't know wow. if a lot of your listeners know that. That started as a black organization, as a Windrush organization. So you, you have that sort of generation of housing associations, which were designed to look after people who weren't doing so well in different parts of the country. Um, when I came along, I came into the sector as a recipient in, I believe it was the, the early 90s. By that time, we had lots of council housing. You had lots of council housing, you have housing associations, old ones and new ones. And what I didn't know at the time, but I do now know, there was a whole generation of new housing associations that, were, that came about in the 80s because of the riots, the race riots that happened across the country. So the one I became CEO of, or did a housing association, was started around that time. But I, I obviously wasn't aware of this. I was no. just, I was busy being homeless and trying to yeah. work out where I was going to live. Yeah, so they, they all came from sort of result of different social issues, but ultimately to house people in need. Yeah. Many of them thought they would be providing accommodation for life, that you'd come in, you, you'd rent this home, and you never had to leave unless you wanted to or you weren't paying your rent. And that's my introduction to the sector, which was your council house is for life if you want it. Now, I can't remember when Margaret Thatcher came and decided that she was going to start selling them off. But at the time I became involved, 
the emotion of the sector was social housing is for life because there's plenty of it if you need it you have it and if you don't need it you don't no one was ever forced into social housing you know you, if you yeah. that's what you wanted that's what you got but as as time grew i mean as time progressed the number of social housing that that was affordable and i hate using the word affordable there was a social rent um, diminished they were sold into the private sector and i will confess that i'm a beneficiary of these because half my portfolio is ex-housing association property that was sold on by the family ended up in the private market and our people like me have them and i i think that's wrong so i'm a contradiction i'm a okay. living contradiction i actually think that's wrong but financially i think it works <laughs> but yes yeah, so now i think social the role of social housing now i think has become more of a step ladder to a better place you know I, I don't know whether i agree with that or not i think everybody not everybody has the same housing need some people may want to stay in social housing for the rest of their lives some people may want to use it as a temporary access to get somewhere else some people need to rent some people can only rent some people have the money and the resources to buy some people have the money and the resources to buy but don't want to stay in the same place just want to rent so there's not one design of housing that fits everybody and i think we need the flexibility to move through each one so so i think the answer to your question is the role has definitely changed it's not assumed that you have your social property for life but this is where if we're talking renting obviously if you're a shared owner then we, are, we hope you'll have it for life but if it's shared over and your staircase most of my friends that have benefited from shared ownership have only benefited from it because they've sold up because the staircasing thing takes forever and a day to make happen yeah so i think i'm answering your question yeah you've given us a lot of interest and insights there lara i think what i'd like to ask next because it's a logical sort of extension from that mm -hmm. is you've said that you're you are now a buy to let landlord yes so i'm interested in what your kind of objectives and your challenges are around that Okay. Well, it's a two-part answer. My first introduction to buy to let landlord was as part of a pension plan. So I was working in London, earning not bad money, but could never really afford the kind of housing I wanted in London. So I thought, well, let's not overstretch myself. I want to live a decent lifestyle, but I will invest. So I started buying property in Bradford, West Yorkshire, which is where my parents now live. Um, so I started buying property here about 2004. You could get a two-bedroom flat for £40,000. So I, you know, put a deposit, got the buy-to-let mortgage, got the tenant in there and just left it. And then a few years later, I'd buy another one. A few years later, I'd buy another one. So that, was, that wasn't necessarily because I had any grand plan of being a landlord. It was, I just thought that was the most efficient way to, to invest money and have something available to subsidize my pension of two pounds fifty when i retire when i retire at the age of 84 whatever the retirement age will be at the time so that, that was my original plan which was that would just be something i do it's no big deal just put invest the money and let the tenants pay off the mortgage and everything's honky-dory but anyway many years later i'm no longer seeing you everything's got a bit pear-shaped I had to review my lifestyle and I decided I wanted to be mortgage free. 
So that's the first thing I need to do. I want to be mortgage free and I want to live in a wow apartment. And that was never going to happen in Tottenham. Property prices were just so ridiculous. So I then moved into this flash pad that I live in now in Bradford, West Yorkshire, sold up in London and moved up north. And it's the best thing I've ever done. What I did is I sold a few, I had a couple of properties in London, sold them too. And for every property I bought, sold in London, I bought a property up here for cash. Wow. And anyway, so I moved up here and had a little buy-to-let portfolio. I think I've got nine in total. And now that I'm living here, I realized that there's a lot of empty properties in the center of Bradford. And I started speaking to people in the council. And I find out there's 21,000 people on the temporary homeless wait, the temporary housing waiting list. And I'm thinking, well, if property is so cheap, why is there such a big waiting list? And, you know, as a southerner, it didn't make any sense. I thought, at least in London, I understand what the problem is. If these properties are so cheap, why can't someone just buy them and rent them out? And I thought, well, I'll do that. So, so that's where I'm at now. So I have my little buy-to-let portfolio, which is all in my name. But what I'm working on now, so if there's any investors out there, listen, I want five million. <laughs> <laughs> or thereabouts the plan is to buy up at least a hundred of the existing properties in the center of Bradford there are many and rent them directly or indirectly to the people on the council homeless waiting list now my unique selling point with this plan is that the rents that we charge will always be just below the local housing allowance and the logic for this is so that the people who are working can afford their rents. We're not necessarily going to go looking for people who are not working or who are working. It's for whoever's available that can pay the rent. But if the tenant subsequently loses their job, they know for certain that at least the rental part of their requirements, their responsibilities will be covered by the local housing allowance. So that's my unique selling point, which probably means that the investors that want higher returns will not be interested in my offer. So if you're a social investor, you want to help homeless people and invest in property, call me. And the other important point is that I'm looking to buy existing property. So there's also sort of a regeneration aspect to this. And um, I'm not looking to develop new homes. There's a ton of empty properties in Bradford that need either refurbishing or there's a couple of them refurbished into flats and there's lots of flats sitting empty. So my idea is to kind of connect the empty properties with the tenants on the council waiting list. That's a brilliant idea, Lara, right? And really timely because Again, there was a, an article in The Guardian recently talking about 2020, saying it's the lowest build of new affordable properties, social properties, whatever you want to call them, since 1978. So it's mm. the lowest in 42 years. And it's yeah. predicting that next year, the waiting list for affordable properties mm -hmm. will double. So there's got to be a bit of uh, appetite for your proposition, I'd say. But... One thing I would like to ask you, in light of the white paper that's come out, you, instead of being a private buy-to-let landlord, you step across the Rubicon and become a social landlord. How do you feel about regulation? <laughs> <laughs> do, do you want to translate my facial expression? <laughs> I'm assuming you're not very happy with it, but it seems to me like it, uh, with the white paper, it's getting a lot stronger. So I just wanted to, your view on... But 
Well, there's there's, re there's regulation and there's regulation. I, I, I encourage regulation, which encourages landlords to consult with their tenants, take, fit, not physically, properly, realistically, genuinely put the needs of the residents at the center of their service provision. I don't think that happens. It doesn't happen often. We talk, when I, I'm saying we as a social landlord, many social landlords talk the talk, but we, we don't practice it because sometimes it's not convenient. Sometimes it's easier to have a system that works and then fit the tenant into that. And I've observed that. Now you're asking me about regulation. My idea, I'm calling it 100 homes at the moment because I can't think of a, any other exciting name. Just call it what it is on the tin. So I'm calling it 100 homes. The, the idea of that is that I can keep, I can manage the rents and keep them be, below the local housing allowance without any interference from central government. Okay. And that is the key reason I, this is not going to be a registered social housing, a registered, whatever, RP, registered provider. That's the main reason. I've no objection to be regulated financially and all those other things. But I know a couple of housing associations have got into a model over their rent setting. The, the rent regimes over the last 20 years have been confusing, contradictory, going back and going forth. And I think sometimes that when the new housing ministers come in, the new housing regimes come in, they don't look at the bigger picture before they come up with what they think is a bright idea. Now, if you speak to any of your big social landlords, I guarantee you they probably have like at least between six and 10 different kinds of rents that they're trying to manage. You know, you've got affordable rents, your social rents, you've got to reduce it by 1% for four years, then up it by this. And then you can do your, your two, you can either, you know, your CPI, I don't know what it is these, I haven't checked, CPI plus one, plus or minus two pounds. Seriously, folks, it shouldn't be this complicated, you know, and I don't want to get stuck in trying to forever figure out what my rent is. I want to be guided by the local housing allowance, but primarily okay. by what the borrowing is. At the moment with my own private portfolio, I, it's in line with what my rental, well, not my rental, my remortgage, my mortgages are. I, I don't have a lot of mortgages on them, so I can afford to charge really cheap rents. Now, if I was regulated, I imagine my rent would have to go up because of the, the current formulas, right. if you understand what I'm saying. So I, I think regulation is a good thing. And trust me, private, and despite all the negative press, private landlords are regulated. There's a lot of regulation there. We've got the, all the health and safety. Where I live at the moment, the council are really hot on their licensing. It's not an unregulated market is what I'd say to them. We're not the bad guys. We do care about our tenants, yes. So social landlords, that's fine. If you're gonna to go to the government begging for grant, then you have to take the conditions that come with that. And at the moment, that's various forms of regulation. I haven't seen the white paper and it came out this morning, last night. I'm trying to get time to read it. And the common thread that I've heard from a few people I've spoken to is that it's increased, would you say tenant engagement? Is that, that it? I think that's the objective. That yeah. They're trying to regulate that. That is one of the objectives, yeah. Yeah. I don't know how you regulate that, but there you go. Have they changed the um, serious detriment? Has that been changed at all? Like yourself, I've had a chance to scan it, but I've not really got into the depth of it. It'll be interesting to see what's in there. Because my, my concern has always been about the definition of serious detriment, which means most of the issues that concern tenants will never meet that definition. 
yeah, you literally have to kill a tenant. <laughs> I don't know, throw them out of the window for it to meet the threshold of serious detriment. So okay, that, yeah. Going full circle, almost. What I want to do now is I want to yeah. come back to homelessness, but mm-hmm. not your homelessness, but your involvement in a homelessness charity, and whether you could tell us a little bit about that and what the aspirations and mission is of that charity. Okay. Yes, I am a trustee of Hope Housing. It's Hope Housing Bradford Limited. It's a small charity in Bradford, which is on the cold face of homelessness. What Hope Housing does is literally pick people off the streets and house them and we I was I was about to say we're not a landlord until recently we were not a landlord what we have done is we do generous deals with local landlords who give us their properties for next to nothing you know a reasonable amount of money and what we then do that they lease it to us for five years and then we house homeless people in those properties and provide them with care and support and we have the full backing of Bradford Council so we get exempt rent I've not quite worked out all the ins and out of exempt rent but I know we get it and it covers the care that we provide Um, early this year we bought our first property and then we bought I think we bought our second property during the pandemic so um, I'm very proud that I've had the that influence on the organization because what one of the things I said when I became a board member is to the, the best ways to secure your financial foundation is to invest in property and I say I say that as an individual who's done well out of property and it doesn't help even though you're a charity buy property own property and that way you can borrow against it you can do all sorts with it it's an asset it's a foundation it gives you a bit of independence and a bit of financial solidity. So yes, what we do is work with local landlords and we house homeless people, give them support, emotional support. We help them get jobs, employment. The interesting that I've noticed a majority of our clients lately have been Eastern European migrants. And one of the unseen positive consequences of Brexit is that many of um, the Eastern European homeless people who were struggling to get accommodation because they didn't have the right papers now have the right papers because they've gone through the settled status shenanigans. So that's been really helpful for us in a very indirect way. So I never thought I'd say anything good about Brexit, but that's it. <laughs> it means that our Eastern European clients now all have the paperwork that they can now use to get benefits. One of the things that we do try to do is house destitute homeless people and destitute homeless people is a very specific term which I learned are those that do not have any recourse to public funds and that is the challenge that we have so we're not just housing those who can get benefits we try to house those that don't get benefits and that's what we seek most of our uh, charitable funding for because no one's picking up those people and they're the ones who are homeless if you're entitled to universal credit, you can eventually get something and get your rent paid. If you can't get your rent paid, you're going to be stuck being homeless. So that's what Hope Housing does. And one of the things I'm working on with the, the staff is um, putting together some sort of little package to appeal to my friends down south who have maybe five or ten grand sitting in the bank and I get in no return to invest that in a small property up here. You can get a decent property here for 50 40, 50K, invest the property, give it to Hope Housing, we'll manage it to you for five years. You don't need to do anything and you get your rent guarantee. 
So isn't it? I'm plugging Hope Housing. I'll tell you what, this is like um, <clears throat> Dragon's Den. <laughs> We've got more opportunities. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what, I think just sort of finishing off the podcast, what I'd like to ask you about, moving away now from the whole cycle of homelessness, social landlords back to homelessness. Mm-hmm. But obviously you're well-renowned for some of your campaigning work with Black on Black and, you know, as being a social entrepreneur. So I've already spoken to you, so I'm aware of some of your personal experience. But again, there's a little bit of an arc of the story from, if we go back, you mentioned it already, Windrush. Mm-hmm. A bit of your personal experience from Windrush. And I'm not saying that's inspired your, your activism, but... I think it's part and parcel of the whole fabric. And if you could just give us again, a little bit of a journey through that process for you. Wow, well, that's another emotional issue. Um, what, Wind, Windrush, I think has made me start to describe myself as a bit of a race warrior. Cause I'm, I've, I've always made statements in, in the social housing sector about the lack of representation at higher levels. And that I would go to CIH conferences and think, where are all my colleagues? How come I'm the only black person or one or two black people in a room of 300 people? So I've always asked myself those questions and wondered what the answer was and wrote a few articles about that. But it, it was never really my main how can I put it? My main campaigning issue. My main focus was always about housing, affordable housing, homelessness. We need to get people off the streets, irrespective of what colour you are, you should have a home. We have enough money, assets, homes in this country. One of the things I'll just slip in quickly is that we have, I, I don't think the, the solution to homelessness in this country is just building more homes. There are lots of, many parts of this country where there are lots of empty properties. Bradford is one of them. There are homes. It's just that people the people aren't in the places where the homes are. And I think the pandemic may change that a bit where people don't all have to go into London to work and maybe people will spread around the country and fill in these empty homes. But that's another story. Anyway, the question was Windrush. Yes. So I'm minding my business. One day I'm speaking to my mum and we're talking about going to see the doctor and she says, well, somehow mentioned the fact that she'd paid a thousand pounds and i said what have you paid a thousand pounds for it's free to go and see the gp she said oh i've had to pay the immigration re- surcharge i'm like what surcharge you've been in this country since before i was born what's going on so anyway it transpires that my mom um sorry i need to come down so it transpires that she's been threatened with deportation for about 10 years by the home office because she couldn't prove that she had some document in her passport from 1970 something or the other. And um, she had been going into the immigration detention, not detention, immigration reporting center every month to report. She and my dad had been going there every month for like so many years. She filled out all these forms. She got really fed up, but she was asked to pay a premium. The immigration, I thought it's called the immigrants premium to use the NHS. I'm like, mum, that's, that's out of order. You've worked to the NHS for 30 years. How come they're not asking you to pay? You've been paying your tax and national insurance. This is rubbish. I was so upset. But interestingly enough, this was just a couple of days or I was a couple of weeks before the whole Windrush thing became a thing in 2018. So I just thought this was my mum, that this was just our family that was doing this. And I was like, this is rubbish. We need to sort this out. How, how, how can you be illegal? When did you become illegal? How come I didn't know about this? And then, and then I'm watching the news and then there's Windrush. I was like, oh my God, this is my mum. This is what my mum's going through. 
And I got so angry to find out that this wasn't just my mother this and my dad. This was like a whole generation of people who came in the 50s and 60s who were invited to this country. My mum was invited to come to do her nurse training. She came here to be a nurse. My dad worked on the buses, worked on the underground and worked for Grattan. I don't know if you remember Grattan, the, <laughs> the, the warehouse. He, yeah. you know, and I was like, these people have worked out all their lives, paid taxes, came here as legal Commonwealth citizens. Mm. And then somehow you've labeled them as illegal. You've, they stopped my dad's pension. My mum could use her bank account. And I always used to wonder why they never, they wouldn't go anywhere. They were afraid if they went out, they'd get arrested. So they always used, never wanted to go. And I knew there was a fear going on, but I never understood what it was. So I was so furious and that really got me upset. And I'm really glad, I'm grateful for people like Patrick Vernon and a Joint Council for Welfare of Immigrants and Amelia Gentleman. There's so many people to name that actually made this become a public issue. Because what was going on is families were dealing with this individually. And I said to my mum, I said, why didn't you talk to anybody about this? She said, well, I was ashamed and I was embarrassed. I didn't want to talk about it because it just made me too upset. And she didn't want to upset us, yeah. her kids. And that just upsets me, makes me angry to think that these people in their 70s and 80s who worked hard all their lives, who were very deferential, not like me, a very <laughs> deferential generation, who say, yes, sir, yes, sir, don't argue. And I just think they were picked on because they were deferential and because they were ill, uh, well, older. And yeah. many of them were probably ill. And it's just an easy target. And it's just completely, totally out of order. So if anyone from the Home Office is listening, out of order. Shame on you. It's very, very wrong. Okay, I'll end Great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's, I'm, I'm, I really appreciate that story, Larry, because it is passionate and it yeah. is authentic. And you're right, it, it was wrong. There's no, no getting away from it. I'm just... Did that help inspire you more for your move for your work with with Black on Board, or were you already on that journey? Well, that's an interesting. It's sort of all these things have sort of merged. I mean, twenty twenty is such a weird year. So many things have merged and created a new world that we're now in. But yeah, I mean, I I have sort of been involved in Black on Board prior to knowing about my parents. And that was just the thing that I did. I wanted to encourage more people like me, especially in the housing sector, to be board members of organizations. And there are and have been a lot of programs about promoting BME staff to become senior managers and, di and directors, I mean, executive directors. There's a whole range of programs out there for internal growth. There used to be PATH back in the day, but there aren't any that focus on getting people into the non-executive level, the board level, trustees, governors. So I've been working on that with a company called Olmec for, I think I've been involved in Olmec since 2017. So that was just a thing that I did while I was buying property and trying to build a property, you know, trying to house homeless people. So I sort of did the two almost separately. And it's only 2020, well, more 2019, and observing what happened to my parents and other people's parents and uncles and aunties, that it's just actually giving me the passion to do more. I mean, I'm doing black and board, I just want to do more of it, but there's just not enough time in the day to do all the things that I want to do. So um, I can see a, a clear, distinct connection between the two. And I'm hoping that eventually we will have people like me and people like you who are on the board of 
the Home Office committees that make these decisions. Because a lot, not a lot of people know this, I sound like that cliche, not a lot of people know <laughs> that all these government departments do have non-executives that sit on their boards that are in, in charge of making these decisions. And I think that if more people know that you can become a non-executive director, the different government quangos, the government departments, if you go on the public appointments website, there's loads of opportunities there to be involved in where the decisions are made. And I think that had there been more people like me sitting on more of those boards, Windrush probably would never have happened. I think that's a fantastic point on which to wrap it up, Lara. I think it's fair to say that not only can you talk the talk, but you've definitely, <laughs> you've, when you can do that for sure, but you've definitely walked the walk as well. I mean, you come across to me as completely authentic and the real deal. So it's been a great pleasure um, and I'd like to thank you for your time and your many, many insights on this podcast today. Thanks, Lara. Thank you, John. It's been a blast talking to you. Thank you. And I look forward to speaking to you again. Brilliant. Got any spare cash in your pocket? Bring it up well, to Bradford. I'll be digging it out, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. Thank okay. you, John. Thank you. Take Cheers, care. Lara. Take care. Bye. If you're new to the Social Housing Podcast, please subscribe if you're listening via Apple Podcasts or leave a follow if you use Spotify. Also, please remember to leave us any feedback, good, bad or ugly, it can only help serve improve us. Finally, I'd like to thank you all for your time and attention. I appreciate that everybody's busy, but I do hope you learned something from the experience. I certainly did. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time on the Social Housing Podcast. Goodbye.